So it is officially Journey Church's fifth birthday. We've officially been a church for five years this weekend, the very first weekend of October, five years ago, 2005. We launched with a few hundred people gathered over in the gymnasium of Heritage Christian School for the purpose of reaching people who are far from God and growing them up in Christ. And we've been working on that hard for five years now, and God's blessed that. Around a 1,000 people. A thousand people now have come to faith in Jesus Christ through the ministries of Journey Church and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more week in and week out are being challenged toward maturity in Christ through the ministries that Journey has deployed all across our community. And as we've gone along over the course of five years, that purpose has gotten sharper and gotten clearer. The very weekend that this building and campus opened just back on September 11th and 12th, not all that many weeks ago, Journey's management team, that's our pastoral leaders from around here, we left on that Sunday afternoon for a few days down at Big Sky with our friend and consultant, a guy named Kelly Freed, to look, uh, look at just what that sharpened and more clear purpose actually looks like. How does that flesh out? And we actually put some words to that new and refined core purpose, we're calling it, which is going to define the next season of our church's life, and it's this. Journey Church exists to do whatever it takes to connect people with God. Doing whatever it takes to connect people with God. And you're going to be hearing us more and more talk about that in the coming days and weeks and months. I'd ask you to set that to memory starting right now. Whenever someone asks you, uh, you're a part of Journey Church, that's fantastic. Well, what what are you about? Why do you exist? What do you do? That's our answer. Doing whatever it takes to connect people with God. Just set that in your hearts, if you would. And we're in a series, uh, week three of a series that we call You, Combat Resolve. And we've been talking for a few weeks now about the enemies of your soul, the weapons that God has made available to every single one of us so that we can actually defeat those enemies. We started the series off a couple of weeks back talking about the enemy of guilt, the weapon of confession. I hope you've been mobilizing that weapon in your life. Last week, uh, our good friend Alex Che, he talked about the enemy of anger, the weapon of forgiveness. I hope you've been deploying the forgiveness weapon in your life. And today, we're talking about, uh, well... Watch this and we'll see what we're talking about. talking about today is greed and the weapon is generosity and just so we're clear generosity crushes greed and if you've been tracking through the series with us you know that according to a guy named Andy Stanley the enemy of guilt says I owe you guilt says I owe you anger then says you owe me and you know what the enemy of greed says got any guesses about what the enemy of greed says The enemy of your soul called greed says, I owe me. I owe me. Greedy people, see, they think they've earned every single good thing that's come their way. 
They therefore set out to control their every possession, their every dollar, as they and they alone see fit. Greedy people have the most overinflated sense of ownership that you have ever seen. And when we're greedy, and we've all at some point in our lives been there, when we're greedy, and when you peel back like an onion the layers of why greed, where's it come from, what's it sourced in, it all boils down to fear. Greed is fueled by nothing more than fear. When we're greedy, it's because we're fearful that God won't actually take care of us like he said, like he promised that he would take care of us. The greedy person then does everything in their power to hedge against any and all eventualities. And when you start feeding the greed monster, there just isn't ever enough. And you feed and you feed and you feed. The acquisition of more and more stuff and things, more and more stuff and things, just goes on and on and on. It doesn't stop. And there's this tension that exists in the midst of all of that that a person, you maybe, could make a very good case that saving and planning ahead aren't necessarily bad things, are they? All you have to do is turn in your Bible to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. There are a whole lot of verses in the Old Testament, Proverbs in particular, that talk about saving, being prepared, planning ahead. One of my personal favorites is Proverbs 6, 6 to 11. Check this out. Here's what the Bible says. Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. That does not apply to you. You got up for the 9 o'clock service. No lazy bones in here. Learn from their ways and become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer, gathering food for the winter. But you, lazy bones, 11 o'clock service people, how long will you sleep? When will you wake up? A little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. That is vivid imagery. I sometimes, in case you're wondering, quote that passage to our children when they will not get out of bed in the morning. It does not help very much. And when the Bible doesn't get them moving, I resort to cups of ice-cold water. That does help. A parenting freebie for you, cups of cold water. No charge. The point is, see, that even the Bible commends us to save, to plan ahead. There's absolutely nothing in the Bible whatsoever telling us that acquiring stuff is wrong or bad, which is exactly what touches into that tension. The challenge of identifying when exactly our planning ahead, our saving, our accumulating, crosses some line somewhere and all of a sudden becomes greed. This enemy, more than any of the other three that we'll talk about in this series, disguises itself as a virtue. And it can lay undetected in our hearts and in our souls for years and years and years. Because, see, greed can be disguised as saving. Saving is a smart thing to do. Even Dave Ramsey says so. Greed can also dress up as, how about this one, we just don't want our kids to feel any financial burden because of us as we get older. That's not a bad thing either, is it? Which raises the question, did Gordon Gekko have it right after all? For those of you who don't know him, Gordon Gekko, played by actor Michael Douglas, is the corporate rating star of the 1987 Oliver Stone film called Wall Street. It's a film about a young Wall Street account executive named Bud Fox, played by Charlie Sheen, who on the strength of just one insider tip gains a spectacular stock trading career but loses his soul, at least temporarily, Gecko counsels Fox that rich isn't just making $450,000 a year, but rich is actually being rich enough to own your own jet. 
relying on information acquired by illegal hook and crook. Gecko buys up companies for peanuts and liquidates them for big bucks. I create nothing, he says with his usual candor. I own, he says. Toward the middle of the film, Gecko takes to the microphone at the annual meeting of Teldar Paper, a company he's seeking to acquire, to deliver a pep talk. Here's a portion of Gecko's wisdom. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. Greed, see, so easily disguises itself as a virtue. It can lead us down a path of thinking that maybe, just maybe, Gecko was right. Maybe greed is good. Thankfully, though, for the sake of our hearts and our souls, Gordon Gecko is not the only fellow to ever weigh in on the subject of greed. A man named Jesus Christ, back in the first century, had a few things to say on the subject, which are best captured in just one single word from Jesus himself, and it's this word, beware. Beware of greed. Jesus' teaching on the enemy of greed begins in Luke chapter 12. You can turn there if you'd like. Follow along on the screens. It's on your notes page as well. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Jesus launches into his teaching at the prompt of a question from the crowd. Then someone called from the crowd, verse 13 says, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. And Jesus replies with a kind but firm answer. The next verse, friend, who made me judge over you to decide such things as that? Which is Jesus' very nice way of saying, that's not my turf. I leave that to someone else. But as long as we're on the subject, Jesus continues. Verse 15, he said, beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Life is not measured by how much you own the words of Jesus Christ himself. And right there, Christ gets right to the heart of the matter, doesn't he? He reveals for that crowd that was gathered on that first century day and all of us who come behind them the lie that fuels our greedy attitudes and our greedy behavior. Life is not measured by how much you own. And we're all intelligent people. We sit here in 21st century America, and we all go, well, of course life is not measured by how much you own. Everyone knows that, and we'll all say that that's true. But for some of us, some of us, that's more of an intellectual ascent, more of an obligatory nod over in God's direction, because we know we should nod in God's direction on that point. But there are still countless, and I mean countless people, lots and lots and lots of Christians even, who believe at the core of their beings that life is measured by how much you own. 
and you just might be one of them. And so might I, which is why we're talking about this stuff today. And Jesus goes on, and he engages the gathered crowd, us as well, in a parable. Now, a parable is Bible speak for a story that teaches something. And here's how the parable goes, starting in verse 16, Luke chapter 12. Then he told them a story, a parable. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. Try saying that 20 times fast. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. So you get the story. The stage is set. This wealthy farmer, he puts his crops in. He no doubt works his fields diligently all during that growing season. Well, what do you know? His field outperforms, his crops outperform every other crop he's ever planted. So much so that he's grown way more than he's expected. Way, way, way more than he needs, certainly. Leaving him in quite a predicament. Quite a quandary. Where in the world am I going to put everything that I'm about to harvest? My barns and my silos are not big enough. And this farmer does a funny thing. He tries to take credit for this bumper crop. Now, we're from Montana, right? The people Jesus was talking to on this first century day, they're from Palestine, which meant that we are, and they were smart enough to know, we're from ag country after all, that this farmer's bumper crop were not just a result of his hard work. How many other factors had to line up to bring that bumper crop, those bumper crops, to fruition? How many things? Greed, though, see, never ever lets us see the world that way. Greedy people always say that the bumper crop or the bumper bonus or the larger-than-expected raise is always the result of their own hard work. I earned it. I deserve it. Where's God in that equation? What credit does God get for this farmer's larger-than-expected crop, our larger-than-expected bonus, our larger-than-expected raise? I'm afraid it's too little too often. Even if this farmer had credited his bumper crops to God's provision and blessing, you can tell from the story that it has never even crossed his mind that the extra that he's been blessed with is intended for anyone's consumption except his own. It was God who gave this guy the abundance that he was experiencing. It was God who gave this guy the extra that he was pondering what in the world he was going to do with. And instead of asking the question he asked, which is, hmm, What should I do? Shouldn't instead he have been asking this question, Lord, what would you have me to do with the abundance that you have blessed me with? Lord, what would you have me do with the abundance that you have blessed me with? Would you just say that out loud with me right now? Lord, what would you have me do with the abundance you have blessed me with? Greedy people never ever think that way, though. Way too often, honestly, I don't think that way either. In about five seconds, I can share with you my personal plan for any abundance that I ever come into. And my plan, just so you know, usually involves storage, spendage, or consumage. A couple of those aren't words, but you get the point, right? Storage, spendage, or consumage. Those were very, very familiar, though, to the landowner in Jesus' parable, weren't they? Look what he does. Then he said, I know, exclamation point, I know the light bulb has come on. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store my weed and other goods. 
And I'll sit back. You can just see this guy, can't you? And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Bigger barns, bigger silos, and then retirement. Sweet. This guy is set, right? And folks, that is the precise effect that the enemy of greed inflicts upon our hearts and our souls. Bigger barns, bigger silos, Retirement. Andy Stanley calls it bigger barn syndrome, BBS. We do not have room for all our accumulated stuff and things, so we build a bigger barn to put it all in. Or in the case of so many Americans, we rent storage unit space when building a bigger barn is not an option for us, me included. And the why that the farmer offers for building those bigger barns and silos it's not even really a bad thing. He says he wants to build bigger barns. Why? Why? To store enough away for years to come. That's not bad. That's good. He's saving. Dave Ramsey would say, good job. He's planning ahead. He's thinking beyond the end of this next month. And that's exactly what greed does to our hearts and souls. Greed always, and I mean always, looks for something virtuous to hide behind so that it doesn't look so greedy because we'd recognize that right he's building bigger barns so that his kids won't go broke caring for him in his old age nothing wrong with that and it would be awesome if this narrative this parable ended right there wouldn't it if it did this farmer then would go down in history as a role model at the very least perhaps a model of godly stewardship at the most but the parable isn't over yet his story doesn't end there neither does ours yeah This farmer planned ahead, all right, just not far enough ahead. He presumed he had years left to live that were not his, didn't he? Seems to be a common thread in this farmer's life. He failed to recognize the God factor when it came to his bumper crops, just like he failed to recognize the God factor when calculating how many years left to live he had. So just... Picture it. He's on the phone with the experts over at General Steel ordering his new barns, his new silos. He hangs up the phone, and he gets some rather unpleasant news staring him right in the face. Look what God says. You fool. You will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? The lesson that the length of his life is not at all equivalent to the amount of stuff and things that he has is about to come crashing right through this farmer's front door. Because he's about to run out of time way, 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 way before he runs out of stuff. And within that same bad news message that God delivers to this farmer, he asks a very profound question, which gets right at where this stuff meets your life and my life. Did you catch the question? But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then here's the question. Then who will get everything you worked for? Then who will get everything you worked for. What's the answer to that question? Someone else. Someone else. Absolutely. Someone else will end up with everything that farmer earned and deserved and stored away in his bigger barns and his bigger silos. And it is the exact same reality for you and for me. At some point, every single thing that we right now today call ours will be owned by someone else. It will all be given 
away, which for us means that to assume that every single thing that finds its way to us is for our own storage, spendage, or consumage is really, well, quite foolish, Jesus says. Because you see, it's not a matter of if someone else will end up with our stuff. It's just a matter of when and a matter of how. And here's what that means for us then. Either we give it away while we still have time, or it will be taken away from us when our time is up. It's just that simple, folks. And look at how Jesus closes this parable. Yes, he says, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. The NIV renders that verse this way. I'll read it to you. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself or herself, but is not rich toward God. This is how it will be. Greedy, see then, according to Jesus, is us storing up stuff and things for ourselves, but not being rich toward God. Rich toward God is a fancy way of saying being generous. Being generous generous. A greedy person is a man or woman who saves carefully and gives sparingly. Uh, So the follow-up question then is, what's Jesus warning? Is he saying that we will die prematurely if we're greedy and not generous like a lightning bolt and bam, we're at? No. That is not what Jesus is saying. It's more like this. If you're greedy And if you're accumulating, if your enthusiasm for accumulating stuff and things outpaces, outstrips your willingness to be generous, then you will suffer complete and total loss when this life is over. So, contrary to the Gordon Gecko view, greed then is not good. So, how do you slay the greed monster? Let's get real practical. The weapon for defeating the greed monster is simply generosity, folks. It is simply generosity. And get this, generosity is not just an action that you do one time or a few times and then check it off some list somewhere. Yep, I was generous that one time on that one occasion. Uh -uh. Generosity is an attitude and a posture of your heart that is cultivated over months and years of habitual generous action. Habitual generous action. Generous giving breaks the grip of greed in and on our lives. And you might be sitting here in this room right now saying, but I do not have any extra to give. Folks, that is not at all the point. Because you see, the key to slaying the greed monster is to give and give generously. And generosity, as defined by Jesus, is giving until it actually impacts your lifestyle. That's generosity. And if you're not willing to give in a way that impacts your lifestyle, Jesus says, not Brian Hopkins says, Jesus says, that's greed. If you are consuming to the point of having little or nothing left to give, you're greedy. If you're storing, spending, or consuming to the place that there's little or nothing left for you to give, you're greedy. That sounds harsh. That sounds not good. That doesn't necessarily put a smile on your face or in your heart. But it's simply true. It is very simply true. And this can be really, really hard for good people to swallow because for lots and lots and lots of us, we've never actually had a greedy thought in our lives. 
Lots and lots and lots of us feel compassion toward people in need every single time we see them. In our hearts, we really want to help. We really want to give. We fully intend to give, but you just can't or you just won't. And you can't or won't because you worry that if you do, then you won't have enough for you. But your heart is good. Your heart is moved toward those in need. You want to give to God's work through your church. Is that greed? Yeah, that is greed. Because greed is not just a way that you feel. Greed, at the very end of the day, is simply our refusal to be generous. And that's part of what makes this enemy called greed so sticky, such a threat to our hearts, such a threat to our souls, because you don't actually feel greed like you feel anger or like you feel guilt, but it's there and it's deadly and it can wreck lives. So here's the challenge for all of us today. Do not wait until all your fear is gone to start being generous, to start giving. Don't even wait for God to change your heart to start giving. Because honestly, generosity is often God's way of changing us from the inside out. As your heart changes, your attitudes and your feelings will follow close behind. Here's a truism, and I did not make this up. Another guy did. God loves a cheerful giver, but he will put your money to good use while you get cheerful. Give until you get cheerful. To become generous and slay the greed monster then, here's some suggestions to help us get that done. First one is this one. Try giving more this year than you gave last year. Try giving more this year than you gave last year. One way to do that is to be what Andy Stanley calls a percentage giver. That simply means that you give away a percentage of every single thing you receive, whether it's your paycheck, your tax refund, your investment portfolio growth. You just give a predetermined percentage of everything you receive right off the top as soon as it makes its way to you. Very practically, that looks like you actually sitting down, writing the very first check you write of every month or every week or every two weeks, whatever that looks like for you, to your church. That's generosity. That's greed-slaying generosity. And it is the first step toward becoming rich toward God. And you know what happens when a community of people like this starts to do that? Just starts to say, it's X percentage right off the top. I give it to God. You know what happens? It means that God's kingdom gets funded ahead of our kingdom. It means that we have to live on the leftovers for a change instead of God's kingdom trying to advance on the leftovers. And if that freaks you out, try giving a percentage point higher than the percentage you gave last year. Maybe you didn't give anything last year. Try giving 2 to 3%. You will not miss it. Right off the top, just take it right off the top. You will not miss it. Bump it up every year that follows, and in just a handful of years, you'll be giving away 10, 12% of everything that you receive in a year. If you gave 7% last year, try giving 8% this year. If you gave 13% last year, try giving 15% this year. Giving at that level, see, is evidence of lifestyle adjustment toward generosity, toward slaying the greed monster once and for all, and it is just the beginning. Second one is this, find new ways to give and serve others. One way I like to think about this is see a need, meet a need. I'm convinced that every single one of us, every single day, see opportunities for generosity, yet too often we pass them over. 
We wait for somebody to start a program to organize around a need. Don't wait for that. Just do something about it with the abundance that God has blessed you with. That's why he's given it to us. God, what would you have me do with the abundance that you have blessed me with? Be creative in that. Ask God to open your eyes and show you needs you can meet, people you can serve. Go out of your way to generously endure inconvenience for the sake of others. Find new ways to give and serve others. And then the third one is this. Become a generosity catalyst who encourages others to give through your attitudes and your actions. Doing that Becoming a generosity catalyst means that you're going to be zealously searching out answers to questions like this. What ministry could I fund with this abundance that God's blessed me with? Who could I help and serve with this abundance that God's blessed me with? And those are incredibly important questions. Because when we're on the prowl for answers to those questions, that's contagious. That's catalytic. Your friends and your neighbors and your family and your small group and the people you mentor and the people who mentor you will catch on. They'll start asking the same questions as they start and continue to slay the greed monster in their life. And folks, if we will diligently set about doing those things, you will begin to set down habits and patterns in your heart and life of generosity. And you will become a generous person. And as you become more and more generous, what you're hedging against is the greed monster ever getting a foothold in your heart and in your life. Could I ask you just to take your things and set them aside and move into a posture of prayer, attention upon God, attention upon what it is that God has for you today? just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. As I was thinking about this this week, I got to thinking, you know, God could have certainly chosen to have been greedy, couldn't he? He could have very, very easily made the decision to be greedy and not send his son Jesus to earth to live and die for the sins of humanity. That's your and my sin. He could have easily done that. But he wasn't. He wasn't greedy. Instead, he gave so incredibly generous of his every last thing, the life of his one and only son, so that we could know God, so that we could live with God, starting right here, starting right now, and continuing on into eternity with Him. The question, though, for us is have you realized the futility of the ways that you've been trying to earn God's favor and simply made the decision to step across the line of faith in Jesus Christ? into a personal relationship with God through him. And it doesn't come through your work. It only comes because of God's incredible generosity toward us. Unconditional love, unconditional forgiveness, life change that leads to a newness of life, a newness of being. And maybe you're here today and you're just saying, you know, though all the ways I've been trying to connect with God, they haven't been working. Maybe this is your day. Maybe this is your day to approach God on his terms and 
his way through trusting him, believing in him. And if that's you, if that's the desire of your heart today, I just invite you to pray along with me, right where you're sitting, a prayer that goes like this. God, I want a relationship with you. It just starts right there, folks. I want a relationship with you. Please come into my life. Please forgive me. As much as I can understand in this moment, I acknowledge that Jesus loved me so much that he generously died on the cross to bring me back to God. And because of what he did, I repent. I turn from my sins. I turn from my own path. God, I'm walking your way. Help me please begin that new life in you. God, then help me live as generously as you did. And that decision to step into a relationship with God on his terms is the most important one of a person's whole life. It matters so much that around here we actually ask people to publicly declare when they do that. And it's not an embarrassing thing. I'm simply going to ask you to do it with me. Nobody else is looking around this room except me. If you prayed with me just then to step across the line of faith in Jesus Christ, would you be so bold as to just slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and just say, yep, today I stepped across. Yeah, right there. Way to go. Way to go. This is your day. Would you just let me see your hand and let me agree with you and let me pray for you. Let me say yes with you. Maybe there's some of us here today who would just acknowledge that you have work to do in the area of generosity, the area of greed, slaying the greed monster. I'm not going to ask you to do this because I want you to raise your hand and say, yep, I'm greedy. That's not why we're doing this. But would you, if you acknowledge that you have work to do in this area, would you just, as an act of declaration before God, you're asking for his help in slaying the greed monster once and for all in your life, would you just say, yes, God? Just slip your hand up and say, yes, God, I want your help with this. I want help slaying, yeah, hands all over the room, way to go. I'm standing with you, I'm agreeing with you, I'm saying yes with you. That's just you saying, God, I want to get real serious about this once and for all. I mean business about this stuff once and for all. I'm not messing around with this. I'm going to do, God, what you ask me to do toward being a generous person, way to go. I see all those hands, way to go. God, I want to be a generous person. I don't want greed to have any foothold in my life. And so, God, we together today say thank you. Thank you for being so incredibly generous to us when you didn't have to. Nobody was twisting your arm, God, to send Jesus to earth to live quite a life and die a terrible death. Nobody twisted your arm into that. You just were compelled by your own love. God, I pray that that level of generosity, the kind that you exhibited to us and for us, God, that that would trickle right across our lives as well. That we wouldn't ever hold anything back. That our grip would be open. And that we would say, yep, I'm not an owner 
of this stuff. I'm just a manager of these things. And God, that we would manage our stuff and things for your glory, for the advancement of your kingdom. That our hearts would be regularly inclined toward generosity, God, and that that would be a defining feature of this community called Journey Church. Make it true. Please, God, about every single one of us.